and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. On today's episode, I'm chatting to Alex Michaelides, author of The Silent Patient. If you haven't heard of this book, you must be the only one left. The Silent Patient is a Sunday Times bestseller and went straight in at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Alex is a trained psychotherapist and a screenwriter and has written movies starring Rosamund Pike, Uma Thurman and Tim Roth. We chat today about how to make every scene of your book iconic, summarising the beats of your story via props and the importance of writing from the heart. The front door was open. The house was in pitch black darkness. None of the light switches worked. The officers made their way along the hallway and into the living room. They shone torches around the room illuminating it in intermittent beams of light. Alicia was discovered standing by the fireplace. Her white dress glowed ghost-like in the torchlight. Alicia seemed oblivious to the presence of the police. She was immobilized, frozen, a statue carved from ice, with a strange, frightened look on her face, as if confronting some unseen terror. A gun was on the floor. Next to it, in the shadows, Gabriel was seated, motionless, bound to a chair with wire wrapped around his ankles and wrists. At first, the officers thought he was alive. His head was lolling slightly to one side, as if he were unconscious. Then a beam of light revealed Gabriel had been shot several times in the face. His handsome features were gone forever, leaving a charred, blackened, bloody mess. The wall behind him was sprayed with fragments of skull, brains, hair and blood. Blood was everywhere splashed along the walls, running in dark rivulets along the floor, along the grain of the wooden floorboards. The officers assumed it was Gabriel's blood, but there was too much of it. And then something glinted in the torchlight. A knife was on the floor by Alicia's feet. Another beam of light revealed the blood spattered on Alicia's white dress. An officer grabbed her arms and held them up to the light. There were deep cuts across the veins in her wrists, fresh cuts, bleeding hard. Alicia fought off the attempts to save her life. It took three officers to restrain her. She was taken to the Royal Free Hospital only a few minutes away. She collapsed and lost consciousness on the way there. She had lost a lot of blood, but she survived. The following day, she lay in bed in a private room at the hospital. The police questioned her in the presence of her solicitor. Alicia remained silent throughout the interview. Her lips were pale, bloodless. They fluttered occasionally, but formed no words, made no sounds. Nor did she speak when charged with Gabriel's murder. She remained silent when she was placed under arrest, refusing to deny her guilt or confess it. Alicia never spoke again. Hi Alex, and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast. Hello, hi, thank you for having me on. Congratulations on your debut novel, The Silent Patient. It's going incredibly well, I hear, and I read. It is. It's, 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 doing, it's doing really well. It's really, it's really exciting. So I have to keep consuming myself, but, but it's great, yeah. Um, so can, can we, for those who haven't read about it everywhere, can you start by telling us what The Silent Patient is about? Yes, sure. Um, the Silent Patient is a uh, psychological thriller, um, and it is about a famous painter who one day shoots her husband dead, and then uh, she never speaks again. And it's narrated by Theo Faber, who is a psychotherapist, who's working with her, trying to get her talking again, as well as unravel the mystery of what happened the night she killed her husband. Oh, such a juicy concept. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, so I've, I'd love to hear more about the origin of the idea of the novel, because um, it is such a tight concept and feels very original. And I wondered if you could yeah, just talk a little about how that first glimmer of the idea came to you and also how long it's been in the making. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, it's been maybe three strands kind of go into that answer. And it's been in the making for a very long time. Um, I, I grew up in Cyprus, um, you know, in the Mediterranean, and uh, I had nothing to do in the summers because it was before the internet. So I just had to read for, you know, three months. And we had a Sounds summer read. <laughs> yeah, it was. No, I know. It was, quite, it, was, it was a lovely childhood. But the best part of it was, um, was sort of discovering Christy at the age of 13. And then uh, just devouring her books, like, you know, one every two days at the beach. Um, and it was probably one of the happiest periods of my life. So I wanted to recreate that. I knew that when I was going to write a novel, I, I wanted it to be an Agatha Christie kind of book. Um, imagining what she might write if she were alive now and she had my life experience. Um, so that was one thing. So the genre was already decided. And then... Um, the other two strands was, you know, in Cyprus, there's a lot of Greek myths. So there's, you know, the plays, the tragedies are performed and reimagined all the time. And, um, uh, you know, like in England, Shakespeare's talk to you uh, in Cyprus, you sort of learn Homer and Euripides and stuff. Um, and there was a myth about Alcestis uh, by Euripides in the play. And it's about a woman who, say, who dies to save her husband. And then she never speaks again when she's brought back to life. And it's not performed often because people don't know what to make of her silence because it's quite problematic. Um, is she is she happy to see her husband? Is she unhappy? Is she angry? And it sort of caught my imagination again about that same age, about thirteen. Um, and I tried writing it as a short film. I tried writing it as a one-act play. And then it all came together when I I, I studied psychotherapy um, and I worked in a secure unit, a psychiatric unit for teenagers for a couple of years. And I didn't know I was going to write the book then. But when I later decided that thought, okay, I'm going to write this book now. And, and if it's a, a murder mystery thriller, it needs a, a, you know, an iconic enclosed location. And so I immediately thought, okay, I can write about a psychiatric unit. I know about that. And instead of a detective, it could be a psychotherapist because I know about that too. And then suddenly the Greek myths and everything kind of came together. It was, it was a great moment when that happened. That is so interesting that it was something, a story that you were interested in as a child and then you went out into the world and kind of lived your life and then the setting and everything came to you and the experience that you needed to write it came to you. Yeah, totally. It's a nice way of putting it. It was kind of waiting for me, is how I think about it. Yeah. You know. And how, um, how long did it take to write? It's hard to say because I was doing a, a movie at the same time and I, so I, it's hard to say, three and, between three and five years. I always underestimate it to people because, you know, you want to say I wrote it in a weekend, but um, it <laughs> didn't. It took a, it took very, it took a long time to write and I, and I'm, obsessive about uh, outlining and so I out, you know I, I studied at film school and um, they we had a great Disney teacher there, a Disney writer and he said uh, you save time by doing outlines rather than doing drafts and I've always stuck to that and so I did I did maybe 50 60 outlines oh, of it and then and then constant rewrites and so and I felt like it was my last shot you know I'm honest with you I felt that um, I knew that I was only going to have one shot at, at, at Asians reading this book I didn't, you know, so I thought it's got to be as good as I can possibly make it. Um, and so, you know, the way that my, my process, I, I really enjoy it and I'm kind of looking forward to getting into it again with my next book is that I um, get to a place where the book is done, like done-ish, and then print it out and then make a whole load of um, reader, make a whole load of notes with pen or pencil and then uh, type up the notes and then print it out 
and read it and do the same thing. And that process lasted about a year, and I drove myself completely mad because um, the notes weren't getting less. They were just getting different each time. And at one point, after about six months, I thought, okay, I, I'm going to go crazy. I have to stop. Um, but I didn't. And then eventually, month by month, they got less and less and less. And then I finally reached the point when I printed it out and there were no notes. And I thought, okay, now I can send it to somebody. Wow. But it was a long process, yeah. And were, pe- were other people reading it in that time? Or was no, it, was no. It, was the first person to read it was, was my, the agent that I didn't have at the time. I found an agent online. And he was the first person to read it. Um, so it was, it was terrifying, you know. But. Wow, I bet he liked it, obviously, if he's your agent now. <laughs> yeah, he did. It was, it, was lo- it was really lovely. It was the dream thing that you as a writer, you, you want to happen. And, I, and it never happened to me because my career has been very checkered and I've been, you know, two or three agents dropped me, you know, before as a screenwriter. So it was, I've never had a, an enthusiastic response from an agent before. And it's a lovely, I, re- I wish it for everybody. It's a, nice, it's a nice thing. That's that's so cool. That's again, again like the, having the experience that you have and having had the experience that you have with writing, um, it kind of it's, it's interesting that well, it's, it kind of makes you think that, that that let me get my words out. It makes you think that this was this was the right time for your for this to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think so. I hope so. It feels it felt very fortuitous the whole thing and very kind of like yeah, I hope so. And, and what, so. does, what does the outlining process do you when you say you did that sort of fifty times? Does that involve kind of mapping out the scenes and working out where things happen? Or yeah, it's a treatment that I would you know say a ten to fifteen page single spaced document that grew, but it, that's was the basis. And it was just seen you know I think in screenwriting terms, so it's scene by scene by scene, and and there are certain things that you look for. You know, um, I'm a big uh, Billy Wilder fanatic. And uh, I learned pretty much all of my writing methods from him, really. You know, so he says that any scene that doesn't have a plot point in is a bad scene. And don't write it because you'll cut it. And so that's something in the outline. I just go through each scene, making sure that there is actually a solid reason for that scene's existence, a solid plot point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then think about how I'm dramatizing it. And then it's like a process of, for me, it's a process of layering in a lot of stuff like oil painting. So the you know the last thing that I'll think about will be smells and colours and sounds that I will put on the scene. But before that, I've tried to, you know, I, I did a film um, with Uma Thurman, who uh, it, it was a huge part in my growth as a writer because she's a, a, one of the most intelligent, talented people I've ever met, and she's been starring in films since she was fifteen. So she knows everything about filmmaking, and she you know she took me took me aside and, and very kindly helped me see that the way I was writing some scenes wasn't working. Um, she didn't put it in quite such nice language, but <coughs> she, um, she said that, it, she said that, um, that you can't, it's not good enough to have two people at a table talking to each other. She just said it's not cinematic or visual. You need to, she said every scene should be an attempt at an iconic image. And that really helped me. And she gave me a lot of examples about that. And, I, and after I worked with her, I went back and I rewrote the whole book once again, trying to put into practice everything that she taught me, which was basically, you can't just, you've got to have a prop, you've got to have some kind of visual dynamic, some, some kind of picture you're trying to paint. You can't just have like EastEnders, people talking to each other. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's what, you know, and being able to hear that and then implement that totally changed me as a writer. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's such a good kind of basis to base your scenes around and everything. And that, that's something that um, definitely comes across, the cinematic nature of the book. 
you're you're oh. there. It's very it's, it's super visual. You can really uh-huh. I think you can really you smashed it. It really works. Oh, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> it's interesting. You. It's interesting that, I, yeah, that it comes from that. Um, so I've I've got um, be careful kind of written all over my notes here because it's the last the last thing I want to do is kind of give away any ending, which was okay. Fantastic and unexpected. Um, um, can you talk about the process of writing towards a twist? Um, and was it something like did you did you write in a linear fashion or did you write the ending for the ending first or? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's hard to to um to think about because it, it sort of as I said it was it was very much like a <coughs> sorry I'm recovering from a cold um uh, it, it was very much an aha eureka moment because I was walking on Hampstead Heath and um thinking and um and playing with all of these strands of ideas and then suddenly the whole thing came to me pretty much fully formed um uh. Once I had decided that I wanted to update the myth of Alcestis and set it inside a psychiatric institute and that she was a patient who didn't speak and he was a psychotherapist and then I just sat down on a bench and I wrote the whole thing on my phone um, and it, it hasn't changed. I mean, all the, all the details and the characters have changed and everything, but the, the actual twist and the outline was there. Um, and I, you know, it's funny because people keep asking me about that and I... I wish I had a better answer because I, I has it's not it's not repeated itself. Put it like that in my in my other writing. I haven't quite. I'm writing my second book now, and I'm struggling. If I'm honest with you, because I, I haven't. I'm trusting in the process and hoping that the the answer will come. But right now, that it it didn't come fully formed, like mm-hmm. like the silent patient. Yeah. So I'm sure it will. Sure it will. Oh, thank you. Maybe thank you. maybe more see, walks on hands today. <laughs> More walks on Hampstead Heath, perhaps that might be a good yeah, idea. Yeah, um, So there are um, there's a, obviously a lot of psychological thrillers out there, and a lot of decent ones. Um, and as someone who's written one that's achieved such success and attracted so much attention in kind of a rather busy market, um, what tips do you have for those that are um, wanting to write books within this genre? Um, I think that I think the problem with my writing was that I was never able to access any depth. Um, and people would meet me sometimes and they'd seen the films that I've done and they'd be like, oh, wow, I didn't expect you to be so interesting or nice. And I was like, oh, okay. So they looked, I knew there was a kind of disconnect with what was inside my head. And because, possibly because I thought this was the last throw of the dice, I just thought I will be as honest about myself as I possibly can through my characters or the story. Um, and, I, and I went to places that, you know, I didn't think I were things I would be able to write about. Um, but I was, I did, partly because I didn't believe anyone was going to read it. Um, and somebody once said to me years ago, a writer, that it's paradoxical, that the more specific you are, the more general appeal you have. Um, and the more try- general you try to be, the less interesting you are to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so my advice would be to write from the heart, even if it's a thriller, especially if it's a thriller. You know, so you have a thriller plot, and then on top of it, I was able to put all of my big interests about psychotherapy, lost love, and you know, and depression, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I think that's why what people are connecting with. I think the fact that it's sort of a little bit, maybe a little bit, like you know, so I gave myself a brief, like Agatha Christie, with a deeper emotional or psychological depth. Um, you know, so I, that's what my advice would be. And um, also, don't give up. One I always think because I nearly gave up all the time. 
and I still do. Oh, I saw your tweet um, just after your, the announcement that the book had become a New York Times, be- Times bestseller, and uh-huh, um, right. <laughs> huge congratulations, oh my God, what a moment. Thank um, you, yeah. I, I saw your tweet, which was kind of, you know, you saying how many times you'd wanted to give up, and how... Oh, because I said, yeah, yeah, I suddenly got very frightened by that, because I suddenly thought, I remembered how often, and how many months were lost, but I just thought, this is crap, I can't do this, and putting it in a drawer and forgetting about it. And then coming back to it. But so many times, I, and every day, I still feel like with my new book, it's working, it's not working, I'm not good enough. And I think it scares me to think that if I'd given in to those voices of self-doubt, all of this great stuff never would have happened for me. So I think it's really important that people keep going, you know? Yeah, and it can also, it can also be really difficult when um, you're an aspiring writer and you see people having what seems like immediate success. And, yes. and then it's like, you know, you dig a little bit deeper and you find, find that they've studied in multiple things and been, do, been working on it for years. Like, it, the overnight success yeah. thing isn't really very, very common. And another writer said to me once that late bloomers are the only interesting ones, you know. And so I would rather be, you know, my age 41 now and beginning a writing career than have begun, had a success at 21 and then you know, not, not had anything else happen. I think it's good to have life experiences. I definitely um, have more to say now than I did at 21. So. Definitely, definitely. Well, I, I read recently that um, people's brains aren't fully formed until they're in their 30s. So oh, really? <laughs> that makes me feel way better about my 20s. That, that explains everything. <laughs> Scientists said it, so it must be true. <laughs> it's comforting to me. Um, so um, let's talk about kind of pace because it's um, such a tricky thing for authors to master, um, but done well, it, you know, it, it completely sucks you in. And I suppose maybe you probably, maybe, I'm um, guessing, but maybe you kind of learnt that kind of subconsciously from reading so much Agatha Christie because her books are so compelling and you know, they keep you awake because you just need answers and yours has completely done the same thing. Um, but yeah, if you could talk a little bit about how you tackled pacing your novel. Yeah, well, I have a very short attention span. Um, <laughs> And so when I read stuff, I have a nasty habit of each chapter thinking forward to see how many pages that chapter is and whether I can do it in one setting or I have to brace myself or, you know, and maybe maybe more people are like that than, than are prepared to admit it. Uh, but um, I knew it had to be a book that I would want to read. And, I, and so I just had to keep the chapters really short and to the point and keep the story moving. And like I said, have a, have a plot point in every, in every scene. Um, and... Um, and then there are moments, you know, where, where you can slow her down a bit. So there's diary excerpts uh, from Alicia, but she doesn't speak. But we occasionally glimpse her diary, and so I give her a little bit of a voice. Mm. And that was an opportunity to slow down and explore her mind and her, her day-to-day life a bit. Um, and I think that that's a balance, as you know, I'm sure. It's like you can't, you can't have the slow stuff unless you have the fast stuff. So it all has to kind of mix together quite well. Was that always the plan to give to write those diary entries and to give her that, or was that something that you kind of came to as a secondary thought? Um, no, it was it was always it was always part of the plan, but it was um, it was really problematic to implement because I, I I felt strongly that she was more scary and more powerful if we didn't get access to her mind straight away, her thoughts. So I didn't want to I didn't want to have too much um, too soon. So it was difficult to work out how to space the, the diary entries within the novel. Um, but then where I did, at one point, uh, originally I, I thought they were going to be one block in the middle of the novel and that was it. 
And then when I sat down to read the draft, I suddenly got to the, the middle and this new voice appeared. And I would just, I was like, this doesn't work. Oh my God, this doesn't work. Uh, and and it, was, it, was, it was really a scary moment. And then I realized that if I had put a, a set up the, the diary entry right at the beginning of the novel, it prepares the reader for what's going to happen later um, and all these other entries. So, and then it kind of came together again. But it was, a, it was the hardest bit of the novel, actually, was weaving in the diary entries. Yeah, and I put it off to last. I wrote the whole of the book first, um, and then I, I just because I, I felt I didn't quite know how to do it. It felt like a really difficult challenge to because the diary entries detail uh, Alicia's uh, mental state in the month leading up to the, when she shoots her husband, which is in the hottest uh, one of the hottest days of the year, and it's like a long heat wave in London. And so I just I knew I wanted to kind of create atmosphere and have her you know, walking around and her thoughts. And, but it was very scary to write. It took a long time, a lot of courage to get there. I hope. Mm. It's interesting how many writers use heat waves as tools, like to yeah. kind of like. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, Hemingway. You know, I've just read a really great book, which I recommend to everybody. I, I pull it up and find it. It's in, it's in the other room. It's called On Writing by. Um, it's a collection of Ernest Hemingway's tidbits and writing advice in letters, diary entries, journalism articles. It's an incredible book, um, it's really incredible. And in that, he says that writer, the weather is, is, a, is the writer's most important tool. And he said that you should always, always, always be trying to include the weather strongly in your novel. Uh, if it's either you know, a long heat wave or a freezing winter or an autumn or something. And I thought, okay, great, because it is very evocative, you know, it creates an atmosphere. Especially kind of with the sort of, you know, the pressure that's building up throughout the book and the sort of like, the sort of like breathlessness and everything, it kind of, and then the heat is like, it, it yeah. definitely sort of makes you feel a certain way, which is... Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's called, so it's called On Writing by Ernest Hemingway? Yeah, something like that, pretty much okay. On Writing. Yeah. Wonderful. Sounds, sounds like something I need to read. <laughs> yeah, you should have a look at it, you, you'll like it, it's really good. He also says some really great stuff about how, you know, when you stop, you should know what's going to happen next in your daily writing and then stop for the day and then not think about it. And he says it's like a well that you, you mustn't you know, take too much from. You've got to just let it replenish itself. But if you sit in the evenings worrying about the work that you did yesterday or the work you're going to do tomorrow, he said it, it really it destroys the whole process, which yeah. I thought was very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And it's because uh, I was doing a process of writing and then kind of writing only writing 2,000 words because it said if you wanted to kind of carry on writing more you should take that energy into the next day rather than yeah. expel it and then end on a low rather than a high yeah I'm, I'm like I'm very slow I don't do I don't count words uh, uh, that I do every day but what I do is I will only write a chapter a day so that's maybe about three or four hours work and that's it yeah. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about it for ages before, obviously, in the morning, so I'm thinking about how, what I'm going to do and how I'm going to approach it, but I think if you're overtired, it's, it's not good. No. Your brain, I mean, if your brain's overtired. Definitely not. Did you have, do you have any kind of rituals to get you in the swing of things, or is it just, I suppose, if you've been writing for so long, you know you just have to No, I, I, I meditate a lot. Um, that's been a big part of it, I think, because um, it, it enables me to get a bit of distance from my negative thoughts, which can be quite... Uh, you know, soul destroying. And so, if I, 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 when I, when I'm writing, I try to meditate two or three times a day just to keep it clear. Um, and I find it's a lot better to do that. You know, and I'm very. Uh, I, get, I think all writers are a bit ritualistic and a bit insane. I just watched an interesting South Bank show about Ruth Rendell, who, who I just love. Um, and she and she she comes across as completely nuts. I had no idea. She she 
when she's writing, she will wake up and go to bed at exactly the same time every day and will eat the same food every day that she prepares herself. You know, so it's sort of like a, putting yourself in a kind of regimented prison. I don't, but then on the other hand, she, uh, you know, her psyche was coming up with these crazy, wild stories. And so it's, it's a real paradox there. Yeah. What would you prefer, to eat a varied diet or to produce, like, <laughs> literary genius? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one. Clearly it's worked for her. I wonder what she's eating. Does it, did they um, say? Yeah, they, it looked like salad stuff. From what I could see, they were filming her while she was chopping furiously. Maybe yeah. she's getting her veg in. I'm pleased yeah, she, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we, we've touched a little bit on your background in screenwriting. Um, so you wrote The Devil You Know, starring Rosamund Pike and Jennifer Lawrence, I believe. And, um, yeah. and the con is on with, uh-huh. with Tim Roth and Uma Thurman. Um, one, one thing that really struck me about the book was that you made every line count. Um, there was like a real, real directness to it, not much extraneous detail at all. Sort of. mm-hmm. And that struck me as something that would be born from your screenwriting skills. Um, Thank you. And yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how, a bit more, because obviously you've touched on it already, but about how your background has kind of helped to shape this adaptation? Well, I think it, I think you know I think every writer nowadays is is influenced by film, whether or not we want to admit it. Um, and I think that it was a, you know Hitchcock was as big an influence on me as say Agatha Christie or or Ruth Rendell or P.D. James or Patricia Highsmith or anybody. You know, I think films are kind of in our consciousness now. And I um, I was when I was writing it, I imagined Hitchcock over my shoulder the whole time, thinking, okay, if he were here, what might he say, and how might he help me kind of shape it to be something iconic? You know, like Uma said, iconic is a great word, because it comes from the Greek, you know, meaning picture. And so you're you're trying to constantly think of something that is a... And Hitch, that's where Hitchcock, you know, interestingly enough, spoke about the way he wrote, is he said, I have a rectangle to fill. And he would think of the picture, and then he said the very last thing that we add is dialogue, which is a very, you know, kind of counterintuitive way of writing, in a way. But... um. He was only thinking about the visual all the time, which is why his stuff is so strong, I think. Um, and for somebody like me, who tends to think in words, it's been a real transition and a gro- slow growth to get there, where I can actually now try to think about images instead. Um, and that's the key, I think, to making it come alive in the audience, in the reader's mind. As yeah, I said, audience in the reader's mind um, when they read something is something that they can visualise. Yeah, such a it's such a good tip because you. As a writer, you, you know you obviously get so bogged down with the word element of it that if you're th- if you're working towards summing up an image, it kind of it gives you. Well, a if bit, I, can, I can give you, yeah, I can give. Sorry to interrupt you. I can give you the little tip that I use, um, which mm-hmm. is something that, that is a rule that I, I, I gave myself at the beginning of the start of the patient when, after I worked with Uber and stuff. Uh, I, 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 sum, I have to summarise at least in my own head um, every single plot point, every single beat of the story with a prop, with an object. Um, and that the scene will be built around that object in some way or other, and that's where the diary came from. It was again because I was looking for a prop, um, and it leads you in all kinds of unexpected and brilliant places. But but if you, you know, I I, I, I also think about Billy Wilder, and you know, it's very instructive to look at the way that he he did it because he would use props um, to express the prop beat and also to express you know emotion. Um, so you would drop a prop, or you break a prop, um, or you know, or if you if you're suddenly something more important has happened, you might forget about a, a prop. Um, so say uh, say in love in the afternoon, right? 
Um, it's uh, written by Billy Wilder and it's starring Audrey Hepburn. And Maurice Chevalier is playing her father. And there's a scene, a silent scene, where he discovers that his daughter is in love. And I would have done that with dialogue. Okay, but if we say, no, it's got to be, what's the prop? Give us a prop. What symbolizes love? A flower. So he opens a fridge and he finds that she's been keeping this little rose, like, alive in a little glass of water. And he picks it up and he looks at it strangely. And then he looks through the door and then he sees her kind of humming to herself and taking out her cello or her little bass, whatever she's about to play. And then he smiles to himself. And that's it. That's, that's, that's what I consider to be really good writing because you've done it all with props and visually and not a word is spoken and yet we're inside their heads. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so, so nicely done without saying all of the cl- cliched things that you would normally, the conversations that you would have. That shows so much. It's, show, it's, yeah. it's, show, it's showing it rather than telling it. It's, so I'm telling <laughs> it exactly. I think about that all the time too. You know? So now at least if I sit myself down and I say, okay, so in this scene... There's, you know, what's happening in the scene. Let me start by thinking of a prop that can summarise it. It suddenly, it just gives you a shape to the writing of this uh, chapter before you've even begun it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. Um, so, we, we touched a little bit on how you, how you thought about giving up lots of times. And so yeah. I wondered if you would have any, like, how did, how did you keep going? What was the motivation that kept you going? And what tips do you have for people that are currently working on a, a manuscript and things aren't yet working and they you know just need a bit of encouragement what would you have, what encouragement would you i would say you know i i, I also find stephen king's book uh, very helpful um and uh, he says you know that at one point in that he says that um that writing a novel is like crossing the atlantic in a bucket um and it's such a great analogy because if you, for months and months and months you can't see any land and you're just trying to get somewhere and you don't know where you're going and you're relying on an outline that you made months ago that you're not even sure you think it's, you know, you remember why you made those choices. Um, but you have to keep going is, is, is the thing. And, and once you do, it sort of at least finish it. So you so now I'm, so I'm struggling with my second novel a bit and I think, okay, well, I promised myself that at the very least I'm just going to finish this draft. Even if it kills me, I'm going to finish this draft. And then once, once I have a draft, I can fix it. I can chop it up. I can rewrite sections, I can move chapters. Well, you know, I think once you print something out, once you've got some, you know, some clay in your hands, once you've got something you can work with, uh, then it's, then you can you can fix it. Um, so I would say keep going until you have a draft, and then take a break. It's important to, you know, in, in, in his book, Stephen King, I always follow that. He says six weeks, six to eight weeks off. Um, I think you have to do that. Otherwise, you can't, you can't like, get enough distance to be clear about the changes you need to make. Yeah, you, you feel like you should be in it constantly, but sometimes leaving your subconscious to mull it over for a bit or just to just to have a bit of distance from it is so key to working out what, what you're doing. <laughs> yes, totally. I think, well, I think between drafts, it's really helpful, you know. Um, and, then, uh, and then just, uh, like I said, just um, keep rewriting. You know, something else I always think about is, is um, uh, Richard Curtis said that, that is the right name, isn't it? Curtis, yes, said that uh, it took him uh, 26 drafts before um, uh, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral was uh, uh, before he gave it to somebody. And mm-hmm. I just thought, well, that means that draft 25 still wasn't good enough. Wow. And so I, th- I find that really helpful. You know, always think about that, that you've got to, it's, it's, not a, it's not a process of just like, you know, one or two attempts, and then if I can't nail it in the first attempt, it's no good. Uh, I, I think my, my book was really bad for maybe 25 drafts. And then it got better. 25 full drafts. 
Um, and so finally, um, you've kind of been touching on it a little bit um, about book two. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you tell us anything, or is it still very early days? Um, it is about a. Um, it's, it's set at a fictional Cambridge college, and it's about a, a group of young girls, women students, um, who are being murdered, and uh, their Greek uh, tragedy professor is the main suspect. And so, uh, and again, I'm using it's, it's narrated by it's a, a female group therapist because I also studied group therapy for a while, um, and she is investigating the crime. Um, and it's, it's interesting, I'm trying to touch on this. It's from, you know, again, it deals with the same preoccupations, so Greek tragedy, psychotherapy, murder, that kind of stuff. It works, you know, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, well, good luck with it. I hope that the process thank goes you. well. I'm very excited to read it. Thank you, thank you very much. And thank you for coming on the Refresh Podcast. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you, so thank you. Have you heard about the Riffraff Mentoring Scheme? This is a new service with Launch which pairs those currently working on books with published contemporary authors within your specific genre so that you can get expert advice and feedback on your work in progress. To read more, learn how to get involved, and to check out our incredible lineup of author mentors slash coaches, head over to the-riffraff.com or come say hey on Twitter at riffraff underscore LDN.